Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D, and today I'll be bringing you the conclusion of the case of Anthony Avalos in Lancaster, California. Let me start off by apologizing for the current state of my voice. I have a cold and sore throat, but didn't want to make you wait for the conclusion of Anthony's case. So you're stuck with whatever this is. With that said, let's get right to it. Let's pick up right where we left off. After repeated calls to the Los Angeles Department of Children and Families, 13 to be exact, on June 20th of 2018, Heather Barron called 911 to report that she had found her son, 10-year-old Anthony Avalos, unresponsive. The following day, on June 21st, Anthony was pronounced deceased. Heather's ever-changing stories about how her son had been injured didn't match the extensive injuries Anthony suffered. Heather claimed Anthony had been injured playing basketball, been hurt during a fall, and finally told investigators that Anthony had injured himself while throwing a tantrum after refusing to eat, all while swearing she hadn't done anything to hurt him and she hadn't allowed anyone else to either. But as I said, Anthony's injuries were extensive. The boy appeared to be extremely thin. He was severely dehydrated with nearly every organ in his body failing. He had suffered multiple bleeds in the brain, not to mention the fact that his entire body was covered in bruises, scrapes, and burns. Of course, investigators suspected early on that Heather's many stories were exactly that, stories. And the truth was that Anthony Avalos, as well as his siblings, was being abused at the hands of his mother, Heather Barron, and her live-in boyfriend, Kareem Leva. And Heather? Her behavior at the hospital had not been what you would expect for that of a mother whose child was dying. According to nurses, doctors, and detectives, Heather seemed to be attempting to fake emotion as she learned of her son's grave condition. Even when given the opportunity to spend time with her son in his final moments, Heather went into the room and spent about 10 minutes with Anthony before she asked if she could be excused to the waiting room. She chose not to be present when Anthony took his last breath, something nurse Priscilla Kabanuk would later testify was unheard of. The nurse would tell the court that she's seen hundreds of sick or injured children die in her profession, and that Heather was the only mother who was not in the room as their child passed away by choice. She explained that while she had other patients whose parents weren't present for legitimate reasons, Heather Barron had every opportunity to be there, but she chose not to be. Not only did Heather's stories change, did she seem to be attempting to fake emotion, and not only did she choose not to spend Anthony's last moments on earth with him, she informed both nurses and investigators of something that at the time seemed strange because it was completely irrelevant. Heather Barron told them that her son Anthony had told her 
that he thought he was gay, but that she loved him regardless. I mean, he was her firstborn son. Of course, a mother loves her own child. So why would this have even been a question? And as far as Anthony being gay, he was a 10-year-old child, a child that was fighting for his life at the time. If he was or wasn't, it didn't matter. Why did his mother insist on bringing it up? Absolutely no one had asked, and why would they? It wouldn't change the course of his treatment, and at the time, they were fighting to save him. But Heather? It seems she was more concerned with trying to convince those around her that she loved her son and would never let anything happen to him. ABC7 reported that during a second interview with police, while Heather Barron, who initially told them she was the only adult present in the home, actually admitted that her boyfriend Kareem Leva was there and had been living in the apartment. I mean, we all knew that, right? However, she stated that Kareem hadn't hurt Anthony, and she had only lied because Kareem wasn't supposed to be at the apartment since it was a low-income facility, and she had already been threatened by the managers that she would be kicked out if she continued to have people over. She went on to say that she was scared and didn't want to go to jail. But Heather, Kareem, and Anthony weren't alone in the house when whatever happened, happened. There were other children in the home that night, and one of them confirmed everything investigators already suspected. As it turned out, one of Kareem's daughters from a previous relationship had been visiting her father at the apartment. The court referred to her as Priscilla, and she was 13 at the time. ABC7 reported that the girl told investigators that Anthony had been confined to his room as punishment for not eating his food in the days leading up to his death. Two days prior to 911 being called, so that would have been around June 18th of 2018, the girl witnessed her father, Kareem Leva, repeatedly picking Anthony up and dropping him onto the floor. And that his mother, Heather Barron, was aware of what Kareem was doing to her son, yet she didn't stop him and further, at one point in the midst of the abuse, the girl remembered Heather pouring water in Anthony's face in such a way that she believed it was a form of punishment. Priscilla was afraid of what would happen if she tried to stop the abuse. She didn't know what to do, so she hid in her stepsister's room and cried, feeling completely helpless. She went on to tell the detective that about two days later, she saw Anthony unconscious in the living room after her father told her to pack her belongings because they were leaving. She and three of her siblings packed their stuff and Kareem drove them to their aunt's house. At that point, Heather remained at the apartment with Anthony and two of the other children that belonged to her from a previous relationship. It was after Kareem and his children were out of the house that Heather Barron called 911 to report that Anthony was not breathing. The truth was Anthony Avalos had been unconscious for nearly two full days before anyone sought help for him. And further investigation revealed that by the time 911 was called, nobody could have saved Anthony. Because when first responders arrived, Anthony was already brain dead. As we know, his tiny body was covered in bruises, abrasions, and burns. But the most disturbing injuries were not the ones that could be seen. 
According to the coroner, while the only visible injuries to Anthony's head were a bruise on his ear and abrasions to his nose and cheek, the injuries to the little boy's brain were extensive and had occurred over time. Anthony had suffered multiple blunt force impacts to his head, which caused several brain bleeds, and those injuries ranged in age from approximately one day to three weeks prior to his death. And it all fit with the story Kareem Levis' 13-year-old daughter had just told investigators. Those brain injuries were consistent with shaking, forcibly slapping, or dropping Anthony on his head repeatedly. With Heather Barron still denying any allegation that Anthony had been abused, investigators wanted to talk to Kareem Leva. Leva, however, would prove to be difficult to track down. According to LA Mag, eventually, investigators found his parents who promised they would bring Kareem in for questioning and to take a polygraph. But the scheduled time came and went with no sign of Kareem. One of the investigators decided to wait out in the parking lot. That's when he found Kareem sitting all alone in his car with a sweatshirt awkwardly wrapped around his neck. He was brought inside the crime lab, where in between bites of McDonald's food that a deputy had brought to him, he detailed not only the events leading up to Anthony's murder, but how he had abused the little boy all along. He sat there cool as a cucumber, munching McDonald's fries, as he told investigators and District Attorney Jonathan Hatami how he slammed Anthony into walls, beat the bottoms of his feet with belts, forced him to kneel on rice, and used stress positions as punishment. You know, he basically admitted to all the things the children had previously disclosed to trusted adults and the police which had then been reported to the Department of Children and Family Services, which that agency chose to practically ignore. Anyhow, he went on to tell investigators that in the days prior to Anthony's death, he had flown into a rage when Anthony attempted to stand up for himself and refused to kneel after he ordered him to. With no emotion whatsoever, he described how he had grabbed Anthony by his ankles and dropped him on his head over and over and over again until Anthony stopped getting up. Anthony then lay there in the floor, gravely injured for two days, his life slipping away from him, while this monster and the child's own mother went about their business. The other children witnessing the absolute horror of their brother dying, all of them either too young or too afraid to go for help. At some point, Leva decided to flee the residence because, I mean, what, was he going to call for help for a dying child and own up to what he had done? Abso-freaking-lutely not. During the interview, D.A. Hatami asked Kareem Leva to take that oddly wrapped sweatshirt off his neck, and when he did, it revealed a large wound. Leva told investigators that the day before the interview, he had tried to slit his own throat with a box cutter. Anyone else find it strange that trash like Leva always seem to fail miserably when it comes to taking themselves out, or is it just me? I mean, I'm not saying I'm disappointed he wasn't successful, but I'm not not saying it either. According to the LA Times, Leva was taken to a hospital with non-life-threatening injuries for that self-inflicted laceration. 
He was quickly released and booked on suspicion of murder, his bail set at $2 million. Two days later, on June 29, 2018, Heather Barron was also arrested and charged with one count of murder, torture, and child abuse. Kareem's charges were upgraded to reflect the same. Eight of the other children were placed in DCFS custody. Even with both Heather and Kareem behind bars, many, including Anthony's biological father and other family members, felt that while Kareem and Heather were ultimately responsible for Anthony's death, the Los Angeles Department of Children and Families, Hathaway Sycamore's Child and Family Services, and specific social workers and supervisors shared some level of responsibility due to the multiple failures and policy violations that left Anthony and his siblings in a home that they clearly should have been removed from. If you remember from last week, some of these same people from these same agencies had also failed Gabriel Fernandez. Of course you remember. How could we forget? On July 31st, 2019, a $50 million wrongful death lawsuit was filed on behalf of Anthony's estate. The complaint documented every single time officials were notified that Anthony and his siblings were being abused, and every single time the system let them down. The family attorney Brian Claypool spoke to KTLA and said, It was heartbreaking to write this lawsuit. I was in tears finalizing this lawsuit. I couldn't believe the number of times, the multiple times, DCFS workers had the chance to throw out a life vest to Anthony Avalos. And just as Anthony Avalos's family was filing this suit, news was breaking of another little boy allegedly murdered at the hands of his parents after repeated calls to the Los Angeles Department of Children and Families. According to NBC Los Angeles, on July 5, 2019, four-year-old Noah Quattro's parents, Jose Quattro and Ursula Juarez, told investigators their four-year-old drowned in their Palmdale apartment complex pool. But Noah hadn't drowned. Noah's death was later ruled a homicide by asphyxiation, also indicating blunt force trauma. A physician who examined Noah testified that the boy had no indication of drowning. His hair was dry and there was no water in his lungs. And further, there was a tear and active bleeding coming from the boy's rectum, which indicated sexual abuse. Noah's family had been under the supervision of the L.A. County DCFS office when he was murdered. Incredibly, there was a court order issued two months before Noah's death which required DCFS to conduct a sexual abuse exam on Noah with a licensed forensic doctor and psychologist within 72 hours of the court order, but they failed to do so. This court order also gave DFACS the authority to remove Noah from the home, but again, they failed to do so. How many times can one department fail so miserably before something is done? How many children have to die before y'all get your shit together over there in L.A. County? Noah Quattro's parents have been charged with murder and torture and are still, at this time, awaiting trial. 
Noah's family is also represented in a civil suit against DCFS by Brian Claypool, the same attorney representing the family of Anthony Avalos. According to the Los Angeles Times, for Anthony's family, a $32 million settlement was reached in October of 2022 with L.A. County DCFS. A $3 million settlement was also reached with Hathaway Sycamores. Y'all remember dipshit Dixon with Hathaway Sycamores from last week? Well, the state board formally accused Barbara Dixon of failing to report allegations of abuse against Anthony in 2015 and against Gabriel Fernandez in 2013. In Anthony's case, the state alleged that Dixon learned from Anthony that a relative had sexually abused him, and there was no indication from her notes that she had reported the suspected abuse. And later, Dixon noted allegations from Anthony's uncle that his mother was abusing him and his siblings, but there was no record that she had discussed this with DCFS. While some people believe this should have landed her behind bars, or at the very least prevented her from ever working with children again, it's me, I'm some people. A state licensing board imposed a four-year probation on Barbara, who, as we know, was a licensed marriage and family therapist. The state board also required her to participate in psychotherapy, law and ethics training, and coursework in child abuse assessment. Seems like that would be a thing you would do before being contracted out to work for a child welfare agency, but who the hell am I and what do I know? According to Brian Claypool, attorney for Anthony's family, during a deposition for the civil suit, Barbara Dixon invoked her constitutional right against self-incrimination. I bet she did. In the aftermath, policies, corrective action plans, and more training programs were put into place by DCFS. But many fear that won't be enough. Since in Gabriel's case, Anthony's case, and the case of little Noah, it seems policies and procedures were clearly violated. With the wrongful death lawsuit settled, everyone looked forward to the trial. The state was seeking the death penalty initially. However, in 2021, Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon announced that the death penalty would be taken off the table. You see, after his election in 2020, according to the LA Times, Gascon issued a directive barring prosecutors from seeking the death penalty in new cases as part of a series of sweeping policy changes he enacted after taking office. District Attorney Gascon has stated that he, quote, does not believe the death penalty is an appropriate punishment in any case, even in a case where a child was systematically tortured and ultimately brutally murdered. Gascon doesn't see the death penalty as an option. Now, I like talking about anything remotely political about as much as I enjoy unsweet tea, which is never and not at all. But sometimes there's just no way to avoid it, and today is one of those days. There are many who feel that directives such as those imposed by Gascon are an overstep of the power of the district attorney's office and that the people, not a prosecutor, should decide what punishments they're willing to dish out on offenders in their states. And California voters have repeatedly rejected ballot measures to abolish the death penalty, once in 2012 and again in 2016. 
And in 2016, California voters actually approved a ballot measure which would fast-track executions in their state. In the case of George Gascon, many California voters, former district attorneys, law enforcement officials, and crime victims' families feel his directives put the community at risk. There was even an attempt to recall Gascon from office, which failed after it didn't get enough valid signatures to be placed on the ballot. There's still an ongoing argument over whether or not the signatures were valid, weren't valid, and everything in between. I don't want to get too far into the weeds with this since you didn't come here for politics. We're only discussing it because it's relevant to Anthony's case. Gascon's directive is the reason Heather Barron and Kareem Leva were no longer facing the death penalty, and that outraged many members of the community as well as members of Anthony's family and District Attorney Jonathan Hatami, who would be prosecuting the case. According to the LA Times, DA Hatami himself was a former victim of child abuse. He gained notoriety after prosecuting the case of Gabriel Fernandez. That case, of course, documented in the Netflix documentary, The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez. If you haven't seen it yet, I highly recommend watching it. It's one of the most heartbreaking yet eye-opening documentaries I've ever watched. District Attorney Hitami took part in the documentary, and many took note of the level of care in which he prosecuted Pearl Fernandez and Asaro Aguirre, ensuring justice for Gabriel. And he'd be lead prosecutor in Anthony's case as well. Only this time, he wouldn't be presenting the case in front of a jury because Kareem Leva and Heather Barron waived their right to a jury trial and opted for a bench trial instead. A bench trial is a trial in which a single judge hears the testimony, looks at the facts, and renders a verdict instead of a jury. And it is a choice made by the defendants and their counsel. On January 25, 2023, the trial began. Prosecutor John Hatami laid out for the judge the two weeks of torture prior to his murder Anthony Avalos had suffered at the hands of his own mother and Kareem Leva. Through the testimony of teachers, DCFS workers, first responders, the physicians who treated Anthony, the coroner, the other children who lived inside the home, the family, and others, the prosecution painted a horrific picture of abuse. Kareem Leva had abused not only Anthony, but Heather's other children as well, the ones that weren't biologically his. And Heather Barron was not only fully aware of this, but she took part in the abuse herself. And as for Anthony, the abuse was unimaginable. Leva had slammed him into walls, onto floors, beat him with belts and cords, poured hot sauce in his mouth, forbid him from going to the bathroom, at times force-fed him, and at other times starved him. Leva and Baron had forced the boy to kneel on rice until his knees bled, punished him by forcing him to stand in stress positions for hours. And worse of all, these two pieces of scum had forced the other children to take part in some of the abuse. They made the other children watch to make sure Anthony remained standing if he had been directed to or kneeling if that's what he had been told to do. Kareem Leva organized a fight club where he would force the other children to fight Anthony, and whoever lost then got beat by Leva himself. The other children in the home testified that Anthony had died after Kareem had repeatedly picked him up by his ankles 
and dropped him on his head. According to ABC7, at one point, as Leva's daughter Priscilla testified, he uttered what was only described as an expletive. This prompted Judge Sam Otta to stop the proceeding and address Leva directly, stating, Mr. Leva, I have not made up my mind about anything, so your actions and how you react is part of the process of trial. You wanted to get up and leave? This is your trial. Judge Otta gave Leva 10 minutes to compose himself before the trial resumed. Priscilla went on to tell the court that she had witnessed her father drop Anthony on his head repeatedly. Anthony eventually lost consciousness, and Heather Barron splashed water in his face in order to wake him up so the beating could continue. But Anthony never woke up. One of Heather's children, identified in court as Destiny, testified that Anthony had been forced to undergo a series of punishments just before his death. She testified that she had seen Kareem Leva pick up and drop Anthony more than 10 times and that her mother was right there watching. It became clear that Anthony was severely injured, even to his younger sibling, a literal child. She stated, I think it was giving him brain damage. He was saying weird things. One of the other children, identified as Raphael, testified that he saw Anthony being dropped by Leva about 20 times, and that his mother, quote, didn't try to protect Anthony. He also stated that his mother and Kareem Leva constantly hit him and his siblings. And by siblings, I mean the ones that belonged to Heather and were not biologically Kareem's. It appears Kareem didn't abuse his own biological children in the same way he did Anthony and Heather's other children. Both of the children testified that their mother told them not to tell police about what had happened, and at first, neither of them did out of fear, and to protect their mom. While her children protected her, Heather Barron did absolutely nothing to protect them, even after her son was obviously gravely injured. Through testimony, it was revealed that for one, possibly two days, Anthony laid on the floor of that apartment, according to the prosecution, already brain dead before his mother ever called 911 and she only called after she was sure she had given Kareem enough time to get out of Dodge. And as we know, Heather Barron had the audacity to blame Anthony himself for the extensive injuries, stating at one point that Anthony had injured himself by throwing a tantrum after refusing to eat. The coroner and physicians testified to the numerous injuries to Anthony's body, to include reddened eyes, numerous bruises, Cuts and scrapes on his forehead, nose, mouth, cheek, neck, legs, shoulder, hips, back, buttocks, stomach, ankle, legs, and foot. Multiple brain bleeds, not to mention the fact that Anthony was severely dehydrated and appeared extremely thin. Then there was the multitude of reports of abuse called into the hotline, reporting the exact abuse that ultimately took Anthony's life. Prosecutor Hatami and his team laid it all out, and the evidence was overwhelming. But when it came time for the defense, hold on to your britches, because it was a doozy. Let's start with Kareem Leva. Leva's defense was that while he had severely abused Anthony and the other children, he didn't mean to murder him. 
The lawyer stated, this case is a case of severe abuse, but as to Mr. Leva, it is not a murder. The defense claimed that there were inconsistencies in the children's testimonies and in the medical records. I'm not even going to waste your time today other than to say that sometimes as a defense attorney, you go with anything you can find to try and create reasonable doubt. And in this case, there just wasn't much to go on. When it came to Heather Barron's defense, her lawyer claimed that Kareem Leva and Kareem alone was responsible for Anthony's murder. Shocking, I know. But they took it a step further, claiming Heather Barron herself was a victim. Heather claimed she was a victim of battered woman syndrome and that she was fearful of Kareem Leva and powerless to stop his abuse. The defense also claimed that Heather wasn't present when Anthony sustained those fatal injuries, and neither were her other children, you know, the ones that had already testified. The story, if you let Heather tell it, was that she had left Leva home alone with Anthony because he was being punished, while she and her other children went out to run errands. And even when she got back home, she was in another room caring for her three youngest children when those injuries occurred. And when she realized Anthony was dying on the floor in her home, she had called 911. That was her story. Stupid as it was, she was sticking to it. But during closing arguments, D.A. Hatami destroyed both of their defenses in about 2.5 seconds. For Kareem, pointing out that just the things he had admitted to during his interrogation showed that he tortured and murdered Anthony. Because what other outcome besides death do you get when you beat, starve, and ultimately repeatedly drop a child on their head? And for Heather, the prosecutor pointed out that they were both abusive prior to ever meeting one another, Kareem and his relationships, and Heather with her own children. Children that the prosecution contended Heather only wanted for the money she received in government benefits. District Attorney Hatami explained that Heather was the mastermind who, and I quote, came up with many of these torture techniques and Kareem Leva was the enforcer. He went on to say, it wasn't just Leva doing the abuse. Heather Barron participated in the torture. Heather Barron participated in the abuse. The whole narrative that Heather was suffering from intimate partner violence was nothing more than a cover-up. And might I add a slap in the face to anyone who has actually experienced that kind of violence. After closing arguments, the judge announced that he would take approximately two weeks to review the evidence and deliver his verdict. Those weeks felt like years. However, on March 7, 2023, Judge Sam Otta delivered his verdict, finding Heather Barron and Kareem Leva both guilty on one count of murder, one count of torture, and two counts of child abuse, one against Raphael and the other against Destiny. On April 25, 2023, everyone gathered back in the courtroom for sentencing. Before the sentence was handed down, for over two hours, family members, friends, and first responders delivered emotional and heartbreaking victim impact statements. One of them being Anthony's sister, Destiny, who was now just 13 years old. She remembered her older brother as a ball of sunshine to everyone. She went on to address Kareem and her mother, Heather Barron, stating in part, Sadly, because of you two monsters, he is not here anymore. 
I would have never thought in a million years that I wouldn't want to call my own mother mom. To me, you are both monsters, and Heather, you are not my mother nor family. Destiny became overwhelmed and broke down as she continued with her statement. D.A. Hatami stepped in to read it for her as he held the little girl's hand. But even he broke down as he read the end of her statement. It read, I am finally free from all the torture and abuse. But if I were to have known that this would end with me losing my brother, I would do it all over again with just one difference. And that is that it would be me and not Anthony. As the DA and others in the courtroom sobbed, Heather Barron appeared to possibly wipe a tear or two away, but mostly sat staring ahead. Kareem showed no emotion whatsoever. One of the first responders also gave an impact statement. She was able to put into words the impact that Anthony's life and death had on so many. I may not have known Anthony personally, but I have never stopped thinking about him. In fact, I've completely enveloped myself in him and feel hurt and care just like mostly everyone here today. Over the years, throughout all of this, I've gotten to know him and feel him more and more. Every May 4th, every June 20th, 21st, every time I drive by that apartment complex, by that cemetery, hearing the name Anthony, every pediatric call I run, I think about him. In my nine years as a first responder, of all of the hundreds of calls that I've ran, all of the trauma, tragedy, and death that I, have, that I and other colleagues have seen and heard of, this still surpasses them all. Never have I been a part of such a sad and disgusting situation. And as time passes and new details constantly emerge, it's only gotten worse. I can never or will ever understand the reasoning to all of this. How can someone be that evil to another person, especially to a child, and even worse, your own? The fact that you monsters get to keep your life after brutally taking one and negatively affecting so many others, that you get to breathe, eat, laugh, and live somewhat of a life remains the most unfair. It may seem counterintuitive as someone that rushes to save lives to publicly wish death upon another human. So as a person that lives and preaches in love, I actually wish the opposite for you both. I would hope that you both are made to feel alone, tormented, neglected, scared, confused, unwanted, unsafe, disgusting, useless, hated, lost, unloved, and every other horrible emotion you inflicted on little Anthony and even more. Death would only end those feelings for you, so I pray to God and all the higher powers that you both forever feel the misery you have caused, both in this life and eternally afterwards. I debated on sharing what I thought and felt, thinking that it wasn't my place, like it wouldn't matter or compared to what the family would say. But in the way that it was important to accurately share my experience and knowledge and to stand up for Anthony in reports and in testimony, I find it important to stand up for myself and his family that are left here behind with this pain to carry. To stand up here and show the impact that he has had on more than just those that knew him, and to speak up and show him that I care more, going way beyond my job as an EMT paramedic. I've always hated hearing, well now he doesn't have to suffer anymore. No, he should have never suffered in the first place. He should have never experienced that pain, 
and death should not have been what finally ended it, and murder should have never been part of the narrative. I'm sorry to the family members, teachers, guardians, friends, and all the other first responders and medical personnel, Anthony's legal team, and anyone also affected by losing him. I'm also sorry to the other children that were treated wrongfully and experienced this atrocity. But I'm mostly sorry to you, Anthony, that this ever happened to you. I can only hope now that you know that you never deserved the evil that was imposed upon you, that it was them that was the problem, and you were better than anything you ever received. In a way, I am thankful that it was me who showed up on the worst day. I am forever grateful to have gotten to know you, even if it had to be in only the most unfortunate of circumstances. I am honored with the responsibility bestowed upon me for standing up for you in your corner. And as I am glad this is all finally coming to a close, even though I wish the outcome was nearly as equal as the one that was given to you, I will forever carry a special place for you in my heart. Early on in the investigation, Heather Barron told investigators that she was no Pearl Fernandez, that she would never hurt her children or allow anyone else to. But as it turns out, the police weren't the only ones she proclaimed that to. Her sister-in-law, Maria, addressed Heather in court. She said, you once told me that you would never be like Pearl Fernandez. I remember that day we sat there talking about Gabriel Fernandez and how these horrible monsters took that young child's life. And I remember you telling me you would never be like Pearl Fernandez. Guess what? You're just like her, even worse. And Maria was right. She was just like Pearl, a monster. They both were. And monsters belong in cages. Kareem Leva and Heather Barron were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. May they never take another free breath. Anthony Avalos was born on May 4, 2008. He would have turned 15 last week. He had dreams and goals of joining the Army and becoming a firefighter or paramedic. He was the fastest kid in the fourth grade and the one who welcomed all the new kids to class. And he deserved so much more. If you suspect a child in your life is being abused in the U.S., you can call the Child Help National Child Abuse Hotline 24-7 at 1-800-4-A-CHILD or 1-800-422-4453 or go to childhelp.org. Be persistent, follow up, and keep reporting. As always, you can find more information on this case on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. I'll be bringing you an all new episode next Thursday and I can't wait. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you don't miss it. You can finally get all your episodes ad free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.